You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. today is from Genesis 12, 10 through 14, 16. So it's a bit, but hang with me here. Okay, I'll be able to see it. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for this famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with the great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. When Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left land, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right land, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you, and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shadolamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemabar, king of Zobiam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. 
Twelve years they had served Shedeloamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedeloamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Eshteroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shavath Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zobiam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Shedelamar, king of Alam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre and Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anar, these are allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. Thank you, Sarah. That is a lot of text. Would you uh, bow with me in prayer? I ask the Lord to teach us from his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not a silent God, but you uh, are a speaking God, and you have told us of all the things that you have done. And I pray that this morning now we would uh, better understand not only this particular passage um, in order to know your word, but really to know you, to know of your incredible deeds in order to rescue uh, our forefathers uh, and shows us how you rescue us. Um, so help us, O oh Lord, and I pray that uh, we wouldn't come away from this um, with more information in our heads, but that our lives would be changed because uh, our faith is built up and we love you more uh, because we see what you do for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So New Year's Eve, you know, comes around every year, and most people uh, often take advantage of this time for a, a fresh start. You know, they make resolutions, you know, often, I want to break a bad habit, right? I want to quit smoking, watch less TV, or lose weight, something like that, and, or start a new one, right? I want to exercise more. Uh, I want to take up a new more meaningful hobby, things like that. Uh, and, and then they launch into the new year, right, with hope, uh, with optimism. Uh, and then comes February. Uh, you know, at which point, if you can even remember what your resolution was, you're in good shape compared to most people. Um, but that's sort of where we find ourselves uh, in this passage. We're sort of in February of uh, Abraham's journey of faith, right? Uh, God came to 
Abram, pretty much out of the blue, and said, I'm setting your life on a new trajectory. Go where I tell you, and I will give you some awesome stuff. Uh, I will bless you like you've never been blessed before. It's going to be better than the lottery. And Abraham listens. But now we pick up in chapter, after this opening section of chapter 12, uh, we've got several incidents, two big stories, and then a third big battle. Um, And what I would like to do this morning is we're going to watch Abraham's faith be put to the test on several occasions. So what I would like to do is three things. I'd like to first walk through sort of the structure of the first two stories, chapter 12 and chapter 13, because there's a pattern actually in these stories. Um, And then the second thing I would like to do is look at the theme of sight throughout those two stories and then conclude by talking about the language that God has just used prior in that he's going to bless Abraham and he's going to curse his enemies. We're going to talk about the blessing and cursing stuff that God has said. And we are going to focus primarily on chapters 12 and 13. I I couldn't figure out how to get all these chapters covered. Um, We'll make some references to chapter 14, but here's what I'll say about chapter 14. There's lots of places and lots of names. And if you want to kind of take a biblical study uh, and go really in depth, you get a good Bible dictionary and all these names and places you can look up and I guarantee you will have some rewarding insights uh, as to what's going on here. Um, So uh, I won't make tons of comments on all of the places and all the peoples. We're going to focus on Abraham because we would just drown in details Um, But if you do have questions, um, feel free to come up and we can talk about those later. Especially about camels. There's a reference to camels in this passage, uh, which is actually somewhat controversial. So if you want to know more about camels in the ancient world, uh, we can talk. So the structure and pattern um, in chapters 12 and 13. In, in both situations, the going down to Egypt story and then the divvying up of the land with Lot, the first thing that happens is a problem emerges. In chapter 12, there is famine, which forces Abraham and his family, it seems, to leave the promised land, which already sort of is, gives you some kind of warning signs, right? Like they shouldn't be leaving, um, but it gets worse. So verse 10, it says, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn, for the famine was severe. It was a severe famine. And then verse 11, Abraham, as they're about to go into Egypt, enter another country, maybe just before they hit customs. He says to Sarai, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and... Being uncertain, this is his first time in Egypt, he doesn't know how they'll respond to the beauty of his wife, though he's fairly confident, that if they know that she is in fact his wife, um, they will uh, separate them. Uh, But first they'll separate his head from his body and then take her, right? Because you can't marry uh, someone else's wife. So um, they're away from the promised land and Abraham is afraid for his own life. That's the, that's the problem. 
The second problem in chapter 13 is that there's strife sort of within the family and within their larger camps. Verse 2 of chapter 13, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So in contrast with the previous story where there was famine and lack, right now their problem is actually that they have too much stuff. So verse 7 a lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds so that the land could not support them, dwelling together. So there was strife between the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abram. So just tons of conflict. Uh, and so that's our problem, okay? Now the next thing that happens in both stories is that Abram puts forth a proposal. He's got a solution to each problem. In chapter 12 with Sarai, he goes to his wife and he says, Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. It's not framed as a command. He's not saying, you will say that you are my sister. He's, he's kind of, it's, the language is much more of kind of an urgent plea, um, an urgent request. And it seems that Abraham has in mind, this is just a temporary thing. While we're in Egypt, well, this is just how we're going to act, right? It's kind of like we'll take fake names and all this sort of stuff just so that no one knows what's going on. And then I won't die. Sarah seems to kind of go along with it. In chapter 13, in verses 8 and 9, Abram once again makes another proposal to solve the problem. He says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen for... We're, we're brothers. We're family. Look, the whole land is before you. Separate yourself. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. And if you want the right, I'll go to the left. You have first pick. But let's not fight. You know, we're family. You get the real estate choice first. It is a bit more noble, right, than what happened in the previous story. Then we get an outcome. So we've got a problem, Abram's proposal, and then we get the, the outcome of the, the proposal. In the first one, Sarah goes along with it. Uh, but here's the thing. Abram's foresight is only partially accurate. Verse 12, he says that when the Egyptians see you, right? But then in verses 14 and 15, he says that when they see you, they'll think you're beautiful. Actually, when the Egyptians see her, they think she's very beautiful. And then the princes see her. Abraham didn't count on the princes seeing her. He just thought they're going to mingle with the commoners. But Sarah is so beautiful that reports go all the way to the top. Okay, And she ends up getting taken by Pharaoh as his wife, right? Like, she wasn't just sort of beautiful. Like, she was more beautiful than everybody else so that Pharaoh was like, She's, I would like her for my wife. Abraham miscalculated. But he doesn't die. He was right on that account. Rather, he gets lots of gifts, right? He gets sheep, he gets donkeys, he's get, he gets oxen, he gets servants, and he gets camels. So what the situation, though, is, is that Sarai, who was barren before they went to Egypt, and because of the famine, they were already in some danger. He has now totally, completely failed his wife. 
And it does seem, unlike Abraham will repeat this mistake later, it does seem actually in all likelihood, based on what we see in this passage, that Sarai does actually, the Pharaoh does actually sleep with her. So like, this is a terrible, terrible situation as far as their marriage goes. And Abram has totally thrown Sarai under the bus. His life is spared, but she's completely at the mercy of this other guy who she doesn't know. He's made her vulnerable and helpless. He essentially has abandoned her. So now the situation is really terrible. Abram is all that she has as far as protection, and he's pretty much given that up. They're sojourners in a foreign country. They have zero rights, it would seem. And they're far from the promised land. And God had promised that they're going to have kids, but now they're not even married. So his proposal didn't work so well. Almost certainly there would be relational scars from this kind of situation. I don't know about you, but I would imagine that your marriage would fall on rocky times after something like this. Second outcome in our second story, chapter 13, verse 10. Abraham makes the proposal very generously, lets Lot pick. And guess what? Lot picks the best real estate that he can see. The Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt where they just went for rescue. So he takes the best spot. And you'd think at this moment, man, things just don't work out well for Abram. His, his proposals always end up in disaster. But fortunately, the fourth thing in all, in all these stories is that finally God does something. God gets involved. In the first one, God sends great plagues on Pharaoh and his household, right? Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And the plagues... Somehow, Pharaoh puts two and two together. We don't know how. And he calls Abram and is like, you dirty liar. Why did you do that to me? And he kicks them out, essentially. He asks Abram three very pointed questions. Abraham sits there, dumbfounded. I got nothing, right? Shouldn't have done it. I botched it. Uh, you're right. I shouldn't have lied. I was scared. This whole episode will foreshadow God's rescue of God's people later uh, in Exodus. In the second story, God shows up again. But this time, so in the story with the Egyptians, God just plagues Pharaoh. He doesn't actually say anything. He just takes action. But in the second story with Lot, God actually shows up and talks to Abram. He says, uh, he renews the promise. He says, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give you loads of kids. So he reiterates his promise to Abram. So that's the overview. But you notice that there is some difference between the stories as far as Abraham goes. In the first story, he seems to really blow it. And in the second story, he seems to be a little bit more back on track. And what I'd like to do now is look at this theme of sight that appears continuously through both of these stories. 
So we'll look at uh, each of these uh, with Abram, and then we'll look at Lot. So in chapter 12, verse 11, when Abraham was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Jump down to verse 14, because verse 13 is his plan. When Abraham entered, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians indeed saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. Abraham sees Sarai's beauty. He acknowledges it, and he knows that other people will certainly want her for their wife. And one of the things that's not clear is, as Abram is making this calculation, as he's making this proposal, is he thinking that, you know what, I've got to protect my life. Sarah's life should be okay. I've got to protect mine because God's got this promise that I'm supposed to have lots of kids. And by my understanding of how things work, if I'm dead, that doesn't work. We don't know if that's what he's thinking or if he's simply thinking he just doesn't want to die. He, he is, he's not thinking at all about the promise that God has made to him. He only sees trouble coming. And he's sort of right. But as we've already seen, he does miscalculate quite a bit. Now jump to chapter 13, because Lot is going to be actually very similar to Abram. In verse 10 of chapter 13, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the, like the garden of the Lord. First mention of the garden since Genesis 3, he sees that it's amazing. Interestingly enough, our narrator also says, and it was like Egypt. Which the only time Egypt has been mentioned so far is just in the previous story. So remember, Abraham goes by what he sees and what he thinks other people see. Lot is going by what he sees. It's like the land of the garden of the Lord and like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So he picks this spot, and we're told that Lot journeyed east. Side note, that is always bad if you read Genesis so far. To go east is not usually a good thing. So they separate. Abram goes to the land of Canaan, and Lot settles in the valley with his tents. Now the uh, men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot does the exact same thing as Abram. He goes by what he sees, he goes east, and it's kind of like watching a horror movie, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter what horror movie it is. You're always like, oh, don't go into the dark basement, you idiot. Don't go to the creepy shed in the woods. Like, you just know that that is a bad thing. And what's ironic is that a is Lot is gonna essentially do what Abram just did, right? I'm going to go by what I see. And it looks really good. There's security. There's plenty, right? 
One of the things you have to know about the promised land, unlike Egypt, unlike Mesopotamia, where they come from, is that there's not a huge river. So you don't have a water source that you can depend on other than rain. Egypt has the river almost all the time and it has to be real severe famine floods for there to not be water. Mesopotamia is the same thing. Lots of big rivers, lots of water, but here they're in this land that doesn't get as much water. So you go where you see green stuff and that is what Lot does. And it looks like Abram in this situation gets the raw deal, right? Man, I blew it again. Going to get the worst land. However, we do get an ominous warning about Lot's decision. Verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot goes by what he sees with his eyes. He does not take into account a significant spiritual reality. And a 19th century preacher, J.C. Ryle, says this about Lot. And you could say it about Abram in chapter 12, that Lot and Abram chose by sight, not by faith. He asked no counsel of God to preserve him from mistakes. He looked to the things of time and not of his soul. He considered only what would help him in this life. He forgot the solemn business of the life to come. And we will see, actually, in the very next chapter, that Lot has landed himself right in the middle of an international war. So, just like Abram, he ends up in a big mess. However, by this time, Abram seems to have recovered. He seems to have recovered that faith that he had back at early in chapter 12 that allowed him to just go without seeing the land that God was promising him. He just goes. He listens to God. He lost it when he went to Egypt, but he seems to have recovered it now. He's going to trust God that he can let Lot have whatever he thinks is best. He gives up the best choice. So he threw Sarai under the bus, but now he's recovered. He's going to look out for Lot and let Lot do the choice. He's also, interestingly enough, in the very next chapter, going to be renewed in his courage. He's actually not only able to give Lot the best choice, he's actually also going to be able to go chase down five other kings and their armies to rescue Lot, right? It's the complete opposite of what he did to Sarai. So the question is, what has happened to Abram between his trip to Egypt and his opportunity to give Lot this decision? What's, what's changed? How has he recovered his faith? And of course, we ourselves regularly experience not having enough faith. You know, we falter, we get scared, we get confused, we, we despair, we lose hope. Because if you look at the world, maybe your own immediate smaller world, not even larger events, it's easy to despair. It's easy to feel confused. It's easy to be afraid. So what happens? Well, here's what happens. Abraham has recovered because he watched God fulfill his promise. 
So let's look at this language of blessing and curse, which is grounded in God's promise at the very, very beginning. Blessing and curse is the language in the ancient world of covenants, essentially contracts. God says to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And these stories are completely shaped by this sentence, by this promise. One of the things that's striking is that in the ancient world, when people made contracts, they would usually say, okay, if you do all this good stuff, I will do good stuff to you. So help me, if you double cross me, I will stab you in the back three times and then throw you into the gutter. That's what they would say. But what you notice in this promise that God has made to Abraham, which Pastor Josh preached about last week, God doesn't actually say, if you botch it, you're on your own. He doesn't. He guarantees only blessing to Abraham. And then God has the audacity to keep it. If you can find a place in the Bible where God fails to keep his word, where he fails to show up on the time and date that he's given, please let me know. God never fails. He always, always, always follows through. In contrast with even those of us with the best of intentions, right? Parents, kids, there may have been that moment, right, where mom or dad promised something that they actually couldn't guarantee it, right? Even though they wanted to. There were circumstances larger at play that maybe, yeah, they couldn't be with you, couldn't take you to the ball game or whatever it was, or couldn't show up for the ball game. But that never happens with God. It never happens. So, what happens when Abram fails, when he goes down to Egypt, when he fails to walk by faith? He thought he had it in, under control. He was going to rescue himself. But in rescuing himself, he loses his wife. God shows up and he curses Egypt. Egypt and Pharaoh have gone against Abram. Not knowingly, but they did. Abraham totally blows it. And yet, God will protect him. Abraham will experience the protection of God. It is undeserved, absolutely, and unearned. God protects Abram and rescues Sarai. And it's not because Abram made the right choice. It's because God made an oath and God keeps every single promise he makes. So notice how Abram responds to God's protection. In chapter 13, he returns to the place of promise. In verses 3 and 4, he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning 
between Bethel and Ai and to the place where he made an altar at first. Abram goes back to the place where he first calls on the Lord. And guess what? He calls on the name of the Lord again. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. This phrase, to call on the name of the Lord, shows up in a few places. I'll give you three. Psalm 116, verse 17. Zephaniah 3, 9. And Zechariah 13, 9. And you can go look at these. But let me read to you just a snippet from Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. It's in the context of being rescued and then reaffirming that you belong to God, that you will serve God. Abraham is saying, you rescued me. I did not deserve it. And I still want to be on your team. Please, I want to be your servant. So he renews his relationship with the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord, the Lord who rescued him when he didn't deserve to be rescued. He emerges protected. And Sarai comes out of it rescued. But then God also is faithful to his blessing. After Abram gives Lot the choice pick of the land because his, his faith is renewed, he knows God is looking out for him. He doesn't have to look out for himself. He doesn't have to make sure he gets the best plot of land. God renews his blessing. He says to Abram in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot separated from him, listen to this. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moves. He goes for a walk because God told him to start walking again, just like back in the beginning of chapter 12. He takes his tent throughout the land. He, he travels and he builds another altar. He's promised land and offspring. God is still going to bless him, even though he blew it. And notice the reference again to sight, right? God says, look, Lift up your eyes. But what's striking is that if Abram looks around, he sees the land, but he also sees that the Canaanites are still in the land, right? He's not actually just looking. He's looking based on God's promise. And this is something that's striking. At the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that was said was that this emphasis on the ears 
Martin Luther said that the ears are the only organ of the Christian. The ears over the eyes. Because we have to listen to what God says. Faith is tied with our ears and not our eyes. Faith comes by hearing, we're told by Paul. God's word, God's promises, that's what we listen for. That's what we trust in. And so one of the practical outcomes at the Protestant Reformation actually was the central place of preaching. Because that is one of the key ways that our faith is stirred and lifted up. Because faith builds on hearing. Hearing God's promise. And so we come together every Sunday, every Lord's Day, to hear again the promises that God has made to us in Christ. Because we are quick to forget. Abraham, it took him less than a chapter. If we do not give time to hearing God's word, our faith shrivels. Your faith grows in direct proportion to the degree to which you hear and trust in God's word. So we want to pick up God's word daily as individuals, as families, because this is how we nourish our hearts. This is how we nourish our faith is by listening to God's promises and holding on to them. Because like Abram, life does not always look like things are going to go as God promised. Abram goes into Egypt and it looks like, you know what? My wife is really attractive. And there are people that would kill for this. That's how he sees it. And so he trusts in his plan. We fail to think about all that we have in Christ and that God has promised to us, the children of Abraham, that we will receive the new heavens and the new earth, that there is a life to come. Abraham regains his faith because he experiences God's blessing when he should have experienced the complete opposite. And because he has experienced God's blessing, his unearned blessing, his faith is renewed. He has the ability now to also be a blessing. One of the things that's quite striking, actually, is that when Abraham fails to trust God, Abram doesn't get walloped, though he does experience terrible consequences, right? He loses his wife temporarily. Terrible Sarah bears the brunt of it, and then the Egyptians, right? He was, God was going to bless him so that he could bless the nations. Well, it turns out he blows it, and lots of people experience bad stuff. But when he trusts the Lord, not only is Lot blessed and rescued, but as we'll see, if you read on, other kings are benefited, other nations are benefited. So as Abraham experiences the grace of God's promise and is renewed by it, he is then a blessing to others. So for us, the first, first thing, always for the Christian, 
is not first to figure out, okay, what's the great thing I need to do for God today? The first thing is always to remember what has God promised you and what great things has God done for you and recognize how secure you are in what God has done for you. Only then can you actually be a blessing. For every time we fail to walk by faith, it will not turn out well. Certainly, it might even not turn out well for others. The life of faith is tied to the word of God, which comes by hearing and not by seeing things the way everyone else sees them. Our lives have been banked on a Jewish peasant who was crucified by the powerful Romans and then rose again. That's what our lives are banked on, and we're banking on that he is promising us a new creation, a land like Abram. We are, we are looking to a land that we cannot currently see, which is crazy. It is truly crazy if it's not true. If God is not who he says he is in his word, you are absolutely wasting your time here this morning. You really need to evaluate whether it is worth your time. Because there's much better things to be doing with your life. If Christ, the Jewish peasant, is not also God, risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father who will come again to judge the living and the dead and whose kingdom will have no end and who has poured out so many blessings on us, we are going to have trouble counting them. So let us walk by faith and not by sight. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us. Our faith is often so weak and we thank you for those brothers and sisters uh, who are strong in faith, O oh Lord, who they, they just are able to take you at your word. And we pray that all of us would be able to take you at your word, that we would see that not a single word of yours has failed. And that, in fact, you will ensure your promises to us, that you will make it happen, and that we are simply called to trust that you will make it happen and to walk with you. And I pray that you would strengthen those here today who are already strong in faith, who are confident that your word is absolutely true. And for those of us who are struggling, O oh Lord, to see how great you are and how absolutely reliable you are, I pray you would give great strength this week, that there would be strength to overcome sin, there would be strength to be free from fear, there would be strength to have calm and peace amidst whatever may come because of your great power and of your great goodness, which you have not only told us about, but you have shown us in your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.